I thought about wearing glasses today to be a little bit more professorial, but uh, I don't wear glasses. Uh, thank you for those of you that moved forward if you have eye issues. Um, and if you have eye issues, but you had too much pride to move forward, shame on you. That's, that's where we're going to go with that. Uh, I'm going to draw on this thing a little bit. There's, this, is, uh, this is one of those messages. How's this for a message intro? I believe this message can either be amazing and full of hope or a total uh, disaster. We'll see how it goes. Um, we're going to give it a shot. I think it's important, and I love this passage. It's just how I present it. That's the disaster. Paul himself is not a disaster, just me. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to dig in a little bit. And part of the reason for the whiteboard and me trying to share this a little bit differently than I would normally share a passage is Paul kind of opens up a rabbit hole with our passage today. Uh, it's this adventure into the idea of hope in the resurrection. Now, there are a couple of things. The Bible talks a lot about you. There's a, a, a ton in the scriptures about how you choose to experience this life and this world, and much of it is centered around your future and what you believe to be true about your future as a human being. Now, what happens when you believe right things about the future is there are certain things about today that start to change, and when you believe wrong things about your future, there are other elements that start to happen. Sometimes those beliefs are because we just don't fully understand, and other times those beliefs are because we're actually we're missing uh, something or deceiving ourselves or choosing to live a wrong way. So when you think about uh, the kind of life that is lived when we are missing the things of God. We start to live, and uh, I'm going to say some words. Bear with me. I know that there are deep issues connected to some of these words, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but I want to talk through this. So when we live and we, we miss what the Scriptures teach about our future, we run into issues like anxiety. I told you this was going to be small, you guys. Fear. Depression, anger, hate. And this is a word that we don't use very much, but it kind of categorically describes issues that we face as a, as a culture. So I'm going to use the word licentiousness. It's a word that the Bible talks about, but basically it's, it's like wild living. Anything in sex and promiscuity, uh, drinking, drugs, like uh, the pursuit of the things of this world. So licentiousness is a pretty broad word to talk about, kind of like the, the sins of the flesh, the lust of the flesh kind of a thing. So licentiousness. And if I spelled that wrong, blame. I guess you can only blame me. Yeah, licentiousness. It has lice in the word, guys. It's bad. That's how you know it's bad. <laughs> All right. So when, when you are living with a wrong view of the future for whatever reason, uh, these things start to take over. Now, I mentioned... Some of these things are, are related to issues of, you know, chemistry and stuff like that. There's all kinds of studies about that. But there is an undeniable connection that when we lose sight of this, and we'll talk a ton about this today, this is actually the basis of Paul's message, that these things start to increase. Okay, so we know that this is not just chemically related because in the last uh, five years, from 2013, so 2013 to 2018, uh, depression has doubled in the U.S., uh, like whatever it is. Actual cases of reported depression uh, have doubled in the last five, six years, okay, from 9% of Americans up to 18% of Americans. 
Currently, 54% of Americans report some kind of level of anxiety. And I know that's a broad thing because you could be like, well, I'm anxious because tomorrow, uh, whatever. But the reality of anxiety is an overwhelming thing in our, in our culture. Uh, fear is a more generic kind of a thing. It just exists. We live in fear. Uh, if you were to take a look at any kind of Facebook group where there's discussion or dialogue, if you were to look out in the world where things are talked about, uh, the overriding element of fear that dictates how we see the world, it's a, it's a reality. We live in the reality of fear. Uh, it's not hard to look around and see anger and hate on the rise at the present day. Uh, it just is a reality that the, um, the issues of our inner person are starting to make their way into how we live towards other human beings, and the expressions of those things are uh, increasing in our current era in the States. Now, we've been a pretty polite culture for a long time, and we're starting to leak in a lot of those places. Uh, licentiousness is an interesting one. I don't know if you know this, but the studies say that sex is actually on the decline. Uh, a lot of the reason for that is these have taken over and the sexuality of America is decreasing and psychologists and psychiatrists are freaking out a little bit saying, why aren't we having more sex? Now, I know that's kind of a weird thing to, to kind of call on, but the reality of licentiousness is not just directly connected to the acts and actions. You can also point to the increase of pornography. You can, uh, there are so many elements as to why sex itself is on the decline, but then you would also look at things like drinking and uh, specifically marijuana use, but all kinds of drug use. The opioid crisis is on the rise. There, our drug use is off the charts. And so this is actually, we'll say, a net gain even though sex is on the decline, all right? So things are, we're having some issues. Recent. Things are recently having issues. Part of the reason is that culturally, even for us in the church, these numbers are not that crazy different inside the church as they are outside the church. I don't have specific stats on that. That's mostly anecdotal, but the reality, and you talk to any of our counselors in the church, and these numbers are not that far off. Uh, the people that they talk to that are not believers versus that are, it's, it's just not that crazy different. And so you look at this and just say, okay, something is happening in us as believers that's creating a different kind of environment than what God has for us. And when you start to think of what the Bible teaches about the life that God desires for you, okay, it's defined by things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness We'll go ahead and, because I'm running out of room, say kindness, goodness. Well, that's what that G means right there. And self-control. Now, if you were to take this and this, you would see, overlay those, and the answers to the things of the Spirit are directly connected to the things of our, our current experience. These are taking these issues and spiritually resolving them in the human condition. It's wild. It's crazy to think about how the stuff that we wrestle with and the stuff that God has to offer uh, are connected. It's pretty interesting when you think about that. And so this, this picture of who you are, God has this plan for you, has this desire for you. We tend to go the way of the world, and one of the major reasons is that we have lost sight of our future, and that is a major issue. And that leads to the rabbit hole that Paul opens up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
So I'm going to have you open your Bibles. A couple of things that are really important for today. It would be wise for you to have your Bible. Uh, I have some post-it notes if anybody needs to borrow them. (laughs) Uh, You might want to mark some of these scriptures down for later study. This is going to be the kind of message, the kind of uh, way that, that Paul and the other writers of the scriptures navigate through some major issues that we need to wrestle with and deal with that you'll want to write things down for later. So whether that's in your phone, in a notebook, or however you want to choose to do that, I highly recommend that you take some time for this. So the state of the hope of Christians today is very similar to the state of the hope of Christians in the first century. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's writing to this church. Just a reminder, this church is full of believing people. These people love Jesus. Paul's affirmed their faith multiple times through this letter. He knows that they love Jesus. They've struggled a little bit with how they're living. A lot of this stuff is creeping into their life, and he's trying to help bring some redirection to who they are as a people. That's a big part of this this book, this letter. And now he gets to this. He's just gotten done preaching the gospel in 15, 1 through 11 all the good news of Jesus. And then he says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, that was a key part of his his message, 15.4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus was raised from the dead. Physically, bodily, raised from the dead. Thomas puts his finger in Jesus' wounds. He feels it. Jesus eats with the disciples, with Peter. His body was raised from the dead, but it was a different kind of body. If you remember, there was a locked room and Jesus just appeared in that room. There was a difference in terms of how that body interacted with the physical, physiological world. If you're not familiar with that, you can go and read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. From the last couple of chapters of each one, you'll see the the portrayal of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, okay? Now, if Christ, Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, I have a hunch that if we were to survey this room, most of you, if asked, hey, is there a resurrection of the dead? If you're a follower of Jesus, your answer would probably be yes. Most of it would be out of uh, obligation because of this passage. You'd be like, okay, yeah, I read 1 Corinthians 15. I get what you're getting at, Matt. Of course, there's a resurrection from the dead, of the dead. Okay, so... So technically, we believe in a resurrection. But what we believe about that resurrection and how we actively hold to that truth, it's it's waning. It's having a a lessening impact on our day-to-day lives. Most of us, in our current way of life, are not really thinking that much about the future. Just to give you an example, uh, there's a word, Maranatha, that just means, Come, Lord Jesus. Uh, In the early church, they would wake up every morning with the prayer, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. We want you to return. This isn't a guilt thing, but when was the last time you woke up with those words on your lips? See, most of us are dealing with life today. We've kind of lost sight of the future. Even if we're praying, even if we're doing the life of Jesus, most of us aren't doing the life of Jesus with our, our future hope in mind. We're doing it with today, with tomorrow, with the very near future. And maybe we think about heaven, which we'll get to in just a minute. Even heaven is different than the resurrection. So Paul's writing, And he says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Paul's attacking an issue of consistency in the the theology of the Corinthian church. Some of you are saying there's no resurrection of the dead. If that's true, what about Jesus? You can't get there and say there's no resurrection of the dead, but Jesus is different. See, the reason these people were saying there's no resurrection of the dead is they had different beliefs. Two groups, Jews and pagans, that had come to life in, in Jesus and found their way into the church. Pagans did not believe in a resurrection. They believed in a, a soul sleep, a state of the soul continuing on, but sort of in this like blissful sleep for eternity type of a thing. But there wasn't, there wasn't life after death. There was rest after death. Rest in peace is kind of the idea of this, this pagan reality of soul sleep. So they didn't believe in a resurrection. So Corinthians that were coming out of pagan life wouldn't have any theological framework for a resurrection and might even continue to hold that even after believing in Jesus. If you remember back to the Gospels, you had those groups, I could write everything down, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees did believe in a resurrection. The Sadducees did not. If Jesus ever wanted to get out of a situation, he just pulled the pin on that smoke grenade, rolled that into the room, and disappeared, right? Resurrection, and they would battle it out. And that's kind of the nature of the Jewish first century culture is there was active debate, is there a resurrection? Well, theoretically, the gospel should answer that because Jesus rose from the dead. If you remember Paul's presentation of the gospel in in 15, 1 through 11, he said not only was Jesus raised according to the scriptures, But Peter saw him, James, his brother, saw him, the apostles saw him, and over 500 witnesses saw the risen Christ. See, Paul's making a point about resurrection. He's making it very clear that the resurrection happened, and we all saw it, and some of you still are saying that there's no resurrection of the dead, but many of us saw Jesus resurrected, so now we have to wrestle with that. And so he says this. He starts going down a little bit of a rabbit trail. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So Paul's basically saying, my life is worth nothing. If I'm telling you the gospel and Jesus hasn't raised from the dead, that word in vain or that phrase just means empty. What I'm giving you has no substance to it and your faith is in vain. You don't belong here. There's nothing to believe in. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, there's nothing to believe in. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. So even if you believe in God, but no resurrection, we testified that God raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. So Paul's like, look, we're blaspheming. In addition to saying the wrong things and having an empty life, we're blaspheming. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Okay, when you think of that concept of futile, I don't know what comes to, to your mind. Maybe you even pronounce it futile, just because it gives a little more drama to the word. Uh, but if your faith is futile, the picture that came to my mind, and just to, to give you, a, you ever have a kid that gets so angry with you, and maybe you haven't. I have. I worked at, uh, you know, day camps and things like that. And you get a kid that gets so angry at you that they come at you like they're trying to hit you. And maybe you've seen it in the cartoons or you've actually done this where the adult just puts their hand on the head of the child and the kid's just sitting there swinging and they can't reach you. Their arms aren't long enough. You guys are like, what life have you lived? Um, so that it's, it's futility. It's an empty gesture. There's nothing to it. This, this poor child is so full of whatever, and he's trying to lash out, but it's an empty gesture 
because there's no possibility that that adult's arm is going to give way to this little 60-pound child that's trying to hit you. I'll change up my examples for the future, just in case you're <laughs> freaking out about this. And so he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. That's the worst part of this message. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, and some of you believe that, and you're still in your sins. And, and Paul's tying theologically the doctrine of resurrection to the doctrine of the atonement. That if there's no resurrection, there's no atonement. And why is that the case? Because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then he is not the Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, ancient of days, that is coming to overturn all of the work of the enemy. He's just a man. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, he's no Messiah to any of us. He is just a man. I've taught this passage on Easter before because the reality is that's when we celebrate the resurrection. If we were to go to Israel and find the bones of Jesus and the DNA proves it and all that, you know, and we're just like, oh, rats. <laughs> we would all walk away and never return. We would close the doors to the church and I would highly recommend some other philosophy other than being a Christian. And Paul does the same thing. We'll get to that at the end. The resurrection, everything is hinged on the resurrection. Paul says this also, just to kind of add to the pressure. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, anytime you see fallen asleep in the scriptures, not every time, sometimes they actually literally just fall asleep, but falling asleep is often a reference to death. So anyone who has died in Christ, they have perished. So our, our hope of, they, they would have brothers and sisters in Christ alongside them, and those people would die, and their hope is that those people have a future. And Paul's saying if there's no resurrection, those people have no future, so they have perished. Their, their end is their end. And the whole hope of the, the Christian life is built on that. The end of our physical life is not the end of all things. Lastly, verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Anybody like being pitied? Husbands, wives, do you like being pitied by your spouse? No, it's kind of the worst, huh? It's just a, it's an uncomfortable situation to be, to be pitied. I mean, Paul's looking at it like we are the saddest people on the planet if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, because we've given our lives to something that means nothing. And that is a sad, sad thing. By this point, you should be really banking on the resurrection, like really genuinely banking on the resurrection, because even today, your Sunday is wasted. You could be at Soup Plantation Sunday brunch right now, and you're not. You're here, and this effort is wasted if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. So you are banking on the resurrection for everything that you've built your life on. So then Paul gets to this. He says this in verse 20. But in fact, <laughs> praise Jesus, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And this is where we're going to get into a little bit of a, a caveat on Paul's part. He's going to take some time and talk about eschatology. All right, this word eschatology 
the Greek word eschatos just means last or last things, and so this is the study of last things. Paul's going to help us understand what the future holds for us, and he's going to try and explain it. What's amazing is if you read 1 Corinthians 15 and you read through the book of Revelation, Obviously, depending on your translation or your interpretation of Revelation, but you can overlay 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, the book of Revelation, and you see an intense consistency across the board with the New Testament writers and what they believe was going to happen in the end when all things are said and done. Okay, so I'm going to read this, uh, verses 20 through 28, and then we'll take some time and we'll talk about it. So grab your Bibles. It's worth following along. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection, or has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he, that's Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in, subject, in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Everybody tracking the subjections there? <laughs> all right. So a couple of things. Paul is actively bringing in Old Testament theology here. So I mentioned a couple of passages. We've got Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Uh, we've got Psalm 8. I don't know if you knew that the Psalms could be prophetic. And you have Psalm 110. And Paul is bringing prophetic statements from these different passages into his resurrection theology so that you know that it's the same story from the Old Testament through to the New Testament. And he's trying to make sure that, that all of these people know this was always the story. This isn't a new story. This was always the story. So now let's talk about what that story is. First, Jesus is the first fruits. All right. First fruits is used a number of different times in the scriptures. It describes things like our tithe, when you give money uh, to God. The Old Testament, God called on them to give a tithe, which is a tenth. That's where the number 10% comes from. If you ever wonder why the church talks about a person giving 10% of their income, that's based in Old Testament theology that God was the giver of things like rain and soil and seed. And so Israel, even in all of their diligence as an agrarian culture, they would cultivate the ground, they would bring it up, and stuff was produced, whether that's grain or fruit or vegetables or whatever. This produce came, and the first fruits was to be given to God. And here's why. The first fruits of a harvest were a sign of things to come. So when God called on Israel to give their first fruits, their tenth, it was a call to faith to believe that God was the provider of all things and that if he was going to give you your first fruits, then he's also going to give you the full harvest. 
And so this applied financially, where God would call them to this, and the, the principle was applied even to somebody that was an accountant or somebody that wasn't a part of an agrarian lifestyle. They continued this understanding of the tithe. You know, you might ask, are we mandated to give 10%? Nobody's mandating you to give anything, but this picture of first fruits is a consistent thing throughout the entirety of the scriptures, that as we grow in our understanding of God's provision, we grow in our understanding of first fruits, and we give as a, an act of faith and devotion to the things that God has provided. So, Jesus is described as a first fruits, as a sign of things to come. His resurrection is a picture given to you and to me that there is more to come, that death is not the end. Now we're going to go through a little journey to look at a couple of passages that will help us understand more about this. So uh, get your, your page-turning thumbs ready, whether that's on your phone or in your Bible. I'm trusting it's thumbs, maybe a little index finger here or there, depending on your style. And go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 6 through 10. Paul writes, and he says this, he says, so we are always of good courage. Actually, I'm going to jot some things down that I just want to hit on later, okay, if that's all right. I have a whiteboard up here, so I'm going to use it. Courage, this is a huge element of this, this story. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Keep in mind, Paul has already talked to the Corinthian church about how your temples of the Holy Spirit, he dwells in you, he tabernacles with you. He's not making a new theology that you don't have the presence of the Lord with you. But whenever heaven, and we'll just use this word down here, whenever heaven is described in the scriptures, it means one of two things. Okay? It means either the sky, literally the, the heavens, or it means the presence of the Lord, where Jesus dwells. Okay, this is not our eternal resting place, by the way. When we go to heaven, heaven is not eternal. Uh, that's not our future. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Heaven is a temporary holding place, the presence of God, and that's what Paul's referencing here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So he says, uh, We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay, so Paul's giving us a little bit of terminology here. We are at home in the body, and to do that is away from the Lord. This idea of the body becomes a pretty key element in our theology that this physical body will come to an end. Our outer person is wasting away, even though our inner man is being renewed day by day. Has anybody not died other than Jesus and Elijah? Elijah got snatched up into heaven. And maybe Enoch. Was he? Yeah, Enoch. All right. So we have three in the history of the world that have not died. And currently we're at over 7 billion people on the planet. You do that historically, and there's a lot of billion of people. And three have not died. Death is an absolute certainty for the human body. When we ask for healing, it's not to avoid death. Just, I want you to know that. Whenever we pray for healing in a physical person's body, 
Our goal is not that that person would not die. We're just asking for God to resolve a broken situation that's part of the fall, that's part of uh, the, the sinfulness of this world. And as a gift, we're asking him to resolve it. But sometimes he just, he takes people home. And death is a, a reality. It's a part of our life. This body will come to a close, assuming Christ does not come before the end of your physical life. But Paul has taught abundantly that this the end of your body, we'll call this the end, that is not the end of your life. There is much more to come on the other side of the end of your body. So that's, that's a, a bit of your hope. That's a starting point of your hope, is that your body, it doesn't come to a total and complete end at the end of your body. So Paul expands on this to the Philippians. This is Philippians 1, 20 through 25. Paul says this, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed but that with full courage, look at that. We're just going to put a star by that every time that comes up. That's, that's a good one. But with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Okay, so I want you to see this. We'll put a star by body also. Paul says, my body currently is given to glorify Jesus, either in life or in death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Guys, I don't know. Should I be alive or should I be dead? And the weird thing is, Paul's not making a joke out of this. He's like, you know, sometimes when I think of the reality of to live as Christ, to die as gain, So here's the question, and this is going to sound a little bit crass based on our current culture, but I, and I apologize for that. But can you think of the reason, as followers of Jesus, why, why we are not a suicide cult? If to live is Christ and to die is gain, then the statement to live is Christ is just as important as the to die is gain. Now there are a couple of things with that. We've got life and we've got death. Some of us worship the end. We want death. We can't wait for it. We long for it. It feels like sweet sleep to us as a culture, and we're anxiously awaiting that moment. Some of us are clinging to life like it's the only thing we have. And fear manifests in both of these, clinging to life and hoping for death. Fear manifests in both of those. And the scriptures are teaching us how to actually live our lives in a way that we understand death and we actually, we're not afraid of it because we know our future, but that life has meaning and purpose. Otherwise, to Christ, to die as Christ, it would just be gain. We get Jesus when we die. So Paul says this, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. The thing that tipped the scales for Paul to stay alive is the mission that we have been given to bring Jesus to the world because the future matters that much. The future matters so much that it's not just your future, but it's the future of everybody around you that God loves all people and desires all people to be saved. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 
I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm going to go for it. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. I'm hearing fewer pages turn, so I'm guessing you are already at 2 Peter. You're like, I know what he's talking about. I'm anticipating 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13. That's what I'm assuming when I hear that. All right. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies or the heavenly things will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay, so on the one side, you might think heavens and the things of the heavens are burning, and that's scary, but, but actually, Paul's talking about, or Peter's talking about those things melting away, and a new heavens and a new earth is being created. And so Paul, sorry, Peter, calls us in this life to live holy and godly because in that, we hasten the day of the coming of the Lord. Anybody know what the word hasten means? Quicken, perfect, quicken. We quicken the day. We participate, you today participate in the coming of the Lord. I don't fully understand all of it. There's not an equation. If 60% of the people on the planet give their lives to Jesus, Jesus comes again. He didn't give us that kind of detail. But he did say, live holy and godly lives, hastening the day of the coming of the Lord, meaning today your life matters because how you demonstrate Jesus to this world and live with the gospel at the forefront of your being is part of hastening the day of the coming of the Lord and the future gets closer to the present when you live a life of holiness and godliness. Digest that pill for just a few minutes, and now let's go to Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Okay, we're still kind of in this zone of talking about death and life and what God has called us into. Let me go back to 1 Corinthians real quick. You don't go to 1 Corinthians. You go to Revelation 6. I just want to check and make sure where I'm at. Okay. For as, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Okay, there's this promise of a resurrection. We haven't actually defined resurrection yet, and it has to do with this future. Most of us have a tendency to think that heaven is our eternity, that this is what we're waiting for right here. I can't wait to get to heaven and be in the presence of the Lord. And heaven's going to be beautiful. It's going to be one of the most amazing things you have ever experienced. Uh, you think about heaven and being in the presence of the Lord, and there are some beautiful things that come from that. But even heaven is not the end. And what we get is in Revelation chapter 6, we get a glimpse of particularly a group of martyrs that died, people that died for their faith, that are, they interact with this vision in Revelation. They're in the throne room of Jesus. They are in the presence of God. And I want you to hear what this says. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had been, that they had borne. This is a group of souls. Okay, whether they have a temporary body or a soul, different people think different things about that, but there are the souls of people that have died for their faith. And then he says this, 
they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Okay, so heaven and the people in heaven are told, wait a little longer. Something else is coming. So I want you to think about some things that are true about heaven. And we get these from the collection of scriptures. I'm not going to take you to all of them. When you are in heaven, if you think about it this way, this is your physical life. When that comes to an end, then you get to experience heaven for a little bit of a season. And then there's the second coming of Christ, and that's the resurrection. What we'll talk about in just a minute, when all will rise, the dead in Christ will rise. And this is our future. This is the permanent future that we're waiting for. Heaven is considered a temporary holding space. All right, so we'll call that H, all right? Everybody get H? You're tracking with all this, right? This is helpful, I hope. So heaven, some things that are true about heaven. This is just stuff to keep in your brain so you can kind of, what I'm trying to produce in us is ultimately a hope in the future. And the hope of our future, and I don't know what your picture of heaven is, but it's not clouds and harps and, and spirit bodies and, and singing and, and that, uh, that kind of a thing. That's it's going to be amazing. I don't know about the harps and the clouds, but the other stuff, the singing, the worship, the presence of Jesus, uh, the, the glistening lake, everything that, that John describes in Revelation, it's going to be incredible. But even that is not the end. We're waiting for something. So while in heaven, here, we are conscious. So think of anybody that you know that has known Jesus and has died. This is the descriptor of where they are in life. They are aware. I'm not going to write all these down. They're conscious. They're aware. They are alive. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are alive. I was talking with my dad about this this morning, and, and he just went straight to Granny and Pa, his parents. He just started talking about them immediately. They just flowed off of his lips, just thinking of their, their faith and being aware of them being alive. They are with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Just think of that for a moment. Everybody you know that has died in Christ is today with the Lord and conscious and aware and alive. They are full of joy. The experience that they are having right now is an overwhelming sense of joy as they are in the presence of the Lord. They are aware of what is happening on the earth. How long, O oh Lord, will you wait? They're still aware of the interactions of the things on the earth. Isn't that kind of wild to think about? That the people that you know that have died in Christ are aware of the activities of the earth. And they are awaiting the resurrection. They are still looking forward. So somehow, here in heaven, it is going to be glorious. And you are going to be full of joy and contentment. And also, waiting for more. Isn't that wild that you can be content and still waiting for more? There's more to come, and that more to come is the resurrection. Now let's talk about that. When we talk about the resurrection, we talk about a bodily resurrection. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And just to give you a, a heads up, next week's passage, Paul's going to keep going on this resurrection talk. He's going to talk about the kind of bodies that we receive at the resurrection. So we'll get into that even still. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Paul's writing, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, dead, 
that you may not grieve as, as others do who have no hope. We have hope, so we grieve differently. When our friends and our family die and they are in Christ, it's a different kind of grief. We love them, we miss them, we long to see them, but we have hope that's different from those that do not know Jesus. Okay, so he continues, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of trumpet of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Paul writes, and he says, but each in his own order, verse 23, back in 1 Corinthians 15, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Okay, so there's this picture that at Jesus' second coming, I'm running out of room up here, at Jesus' second coming, there's this new thing that we're waiting for called the resurrection. And what Peter described is the new heavens and the new earth the physical earth that we're a part of will also go through a resurrection of sorts. That what has been will pass away, but a new heavens and a new earth, a new city, a new Jerusalem, these things will be, will, uh, we actually see the new Jerusalem descending onto the new earth in Revelation. So there's this picture even of the joining of God's creation and its restoration of all things. It's a beautiful picture of what God is at work doing right now. Why is this a different kind of hope than heaven? For Paul, the, well actually for all of the New Testament writers, there is next to nothing about heaven and almost everything about the resurrection. We kind of switch those. We kind of long for heaven, for, for life to be done. It's going to be great to be with the Lord. I can't wait to be with the Lord, that kind of a thing. But Paul has this picture in mind of purpose, of work, of participation. See, when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, before the fall, he gave them responsibility. They had activity to do. They, had, they were participating in the creative work of God bringing all things together. And that's the picture of the future that we're waiting for is not, again, forgive the caricature, but not clouds and harps and, and floating around, but of being given new bodies where there's no death and no pain and no tears. And we are given life and purpose and function in the full realization of the kingdom of God. Now, with all the minutes that I have left, I want to take some time and I want to talk about the kingdom of God and what we're waiting for because that actually manifests in our present day. Okay, this right here. Well, I've got so many places I could start. The kingdom of God is the full and complete rule and reign of all things by God himself. Jesus will hand authority back to the Father, and the Father will rule in this kingdom. It's this incredible series of events that takes place, and we look forward to that. 
But the teaching of the New Testament actually teaches that the kingdom of God has already come to earth and that there is a full realization of the kingdom of God at this point when 1 Corinthians talks about, and this right here is what we're living in. If you've ever heard us use the phrases, the already and the not yet, that's what this is referencing. There, is, there are elements of the kingdom of God that have come, and that's what this is. God's presence in us. When Jesus came to earth, he began something, inaugurated the kingdom that is now taking over the earth in increasing measure with every new person that gives their life to Jesus and submits to his rule and reign, the kingdom of God is expanding on earth. It's taking ground and more of God's presence is being known and felt as these things are being overcome and these things are taking shape. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray. He wasn't just praying for this. He was telling us to pray for this, that the rule of Jesus would take increased shape in our lives. And by doing that, we are bringing the kingdom in increasing measure to the present day. So the way that we can do that, Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So let's put an end there for not. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We've been given the Spirit of God to walk by the Spirit, and in so doing, as the Spirit of God lives in us, He expands the kingdom of God to take more ground on the earth by living God's presence, His kingdom, His way in increasing measure and his kingdom is seen and known and experienced, and more people get to experience God through faith in Jesus because of the Spirit of God living through us. Okay, so a quick uh, pop quiz. If you're living by the flesh and these things are defining you, is that going to lead people to Jesus more? Or is living by the Spirit and letting these things define you going to lead people to Jesus more? You can answer in your own head. You don't have to answer out loud. You start to see that what we've been given is tools and resources to live the kingdom of God today for our own benefit. Nobody likes this stuff. Nobody loves to be defined by these things, but we love to be defined by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. We love that. If you're known as the kindest person in your office, that's one thing. If you're known as the most anxious person in your office, that's a different thing. Typically, one's positive and one's negative. If you're known as the most self-controlled person I've ever met, typically people are impressed or wowed by that, that growing self-control in you. If you are known as the most licentious person that you've ever met, nobody really says that, but typically that's what movies are made out of. Like that's, that's the kind of thing that, that we, we look at and we just say, what is going on with that person? I'm just giving you a picture that we've been given a tool, a resource in the Spirit of God to bring the kingdom in fuller measure. Back to Paul. He finishes this whole section by saying, look, we're teaching you how to live in a way that brings the kingdom of God here and now and that fills you with hope for the future so that you can have courage 
to endure the difficulties of today because all of the stuff in here, Jesus promised, is going to be full of hardship and war and suffering and pain and difficulty. There is resistance to get from the already to the not yet because Satan is lashing out in increasing measure and Jesus is taking ground and the, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. But, but... We have to endure with Christ and persevere. You have a participation, and that is to press on with Jesus into the darkness to be a part of overcoming the darkness. Otherwise, these are going to be the things that define our life today. So we're called to press in, to have courage. So listen to what Paul says about this. Uh, sorry about verse 29. It's a little weird. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Scholars don't know exactly what the Corinthians were doing, except maybe vicarious baptism, having people baptized for, for people that have died. The Mormons take that literally, and they still to this day do that in their temple. But that is not a practice that is a part of the way of grace. That's not how that's supposed to work. So just so that you know, when Paul's saying this, he's basically saying, if, if that practice were happening, which a lot of people believe that it actually wasn't, otherwise Paul would condemn it, but that he's using this as a picture of baptism in and of itself is worthless if there's no resurrection. There's no, there's no point to being baptized because the picture is being raised up. Anyways, sorry, I'll continue, but that's a weird verse. He says this, why are we in danger every hour? What would be the point of living a life full of danger, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Paul's like, why am I giving my life to this? What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? And he says two phrases that were very common in the day. Number one, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. There's a, there's a play that Paul's quoting. He's being very relevant. It'd be like us, I don't know, quoting a stand-up comic or something in a sermon. Paul's actually quoting in the scriptures uh, a first century playwright, a Greek playwright. And his point is this. Look, if this isn't our future and you don't hold to this, then stop trying to live a Jesus life. There's no point because if death is the end, then hedonism is the way of life. Eat, drink, because tomorrow we die. Honestly, you know how there's uh, atheist churches these days? Have, have you guys heard this? It's kind of a quasi-growing movement. I think it's a growing movement. But anyways, uh, atheist churches that will preach a message of hedonism. And they're basically preaching this message on the flip if there's no resurrection, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If we are just biological creatures, for just chemical synapses and electrodes and all the things that are snapping, if the day that your heart stops and there's nothing beyond that, then your only goal should be to stay alive as long as possible, because this is all you get, and to maximize the enjoyment of your life, whatever it is that makes you happy. Have you guys heard the message of the world lately? Stay alive as long as possible. Right? I know it was kind of a joke, but uh, Rob Lowe and Parks and Rec, uh, scientists believe that the first human being to live to 150 is here. I believe I am that man. Like, live as long as possible. 
is a huge thing. Delaying aging, prolonging life, getting all the work done, doing all the medical things, staying, whatever it is, stay alive as long as possible, and then maximize your life. And I know we joke about millennials and maximizing life, but it's not just millennials. They do it in a different way. They get in vans and go hiking and drive all over the place and do their adventures and that kind of a thing. And that's a beautiful millennial life. That's fine. Uh, Boomers, Xers, what's above boomers? Older people? Sorry. Um, (laughs) The great, are you literally just called the greatest generation? All right. That's a little much, but that's okay. That's fine. All right. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, but you're a boomer, aren't you? Yeah, but I'm not the greatest. No, I know, yeah. Above the boomers is the greatest. All right, so it's all downhill from the greatest generation, you guys. Um, all of us, yeah, the, the boomers are the so-so generation. The Xers, nobody even talks about us anymore, and then people are fascinated by millennials and Gen Z. Every generation has their form of maximizing life. And whatever the next generation to kind of be taking the world in their 20s, they always get the attention of how it is. Just think back when like Nirvana and grunge music and all of that, that was my generation starting to be into their 20s and whatnot and starting to live life to the fullest. And it was full of angst and anger and frustration and music. And and that was what defined us. And we got talked about a ton. Now it's millennials and Instagram and pictures in the redwoods and whatever. It's But but boomers have golf and yachts and all that kind of stuff. And then the greatest generation just has like the American flag and peace and whatever. I don't, whatever it is, we've all had our thing that maximizes life. And that's the message if there's no resurrection. If there is a resurrection of the dead, then your entire life Everything about it should be lived with this at the forefront of your mind. Not the back of your mind, but at the forefront of your mind. Everything about your life should be geared towards how can I get everybody I love and know, and even those I don't love and I don't know, to join me in the resurrection because eternity, eternity, living in the resurrection, that is worth living for being with Jesus and working in his new creation for all time. That is the life to live. Otherwise, I would say live a very different life. If this, this is a a go, no go kind of a message. And, And Jesus will even say in Revelation, like, what's the point of living in the middle? That's the whole lukewarm idea. What's the point of living with one foot in the resurrection and one foot in death being the end? My last thing, and Shannon, if you guys can hear me, you guys can start coming up right now. But to these things, and I get, I get that there are more elements to these things than, uh, than maybe just living by the Spirit. Although, talk to, talk to counselors that, that know Jesus, and you will find that the more we live by the Spirit, even if these are chemically induced, you will see those things start to reduce in your life as you grow in submission to the Spirit. But I just want you to hear this. As we grow in our understanding of the resurrection, it brings us to this belief that the kingdom of God is here and now. And if the kingdom of God is here and now, it's already, then these things become the defining force of our lives and we become a blessing to the world as opposed to somebody that 
that, that is struggling to exist in the world as we know it. If you are at present struggling with anxiety, fear, depression, anger, hate, even licentiousness, like if you're stuck in the spiral of these battles, I do want to encourage you. I realize that it's not a quick fix. It's not a one and done. I'm not here to just say, love Jesus and all of this goes away. But I do want to give you hope. I do want to give you hope that as you press into the life of Jesus, as you are filled by the Spirit of God in increasing measure and relinquish control of who you are to who he is, it changes your perspective on life. And you start to live with a different outlook. And so even if you're battling these things in your physical body, maybe there are physical elements. There's ties to genetics. There's all kinds of stuff going on. I'm not trying to get into that conversation. But even if there are physical elements to this, the power of God can overcome. And you can find victory in Jesus in your life today. There's hope for that. That's what Paul is trying to communicate. I went really long, and I'm sorry. But I hope, I hope you're seeing the importance of starting to live in the fullness of what Jesus has for us. What I want to do, uh, we're going to close with a time of worship. We'll do two songs. Sorry, we have three prepared, but we'll do, we'll do two songs. As you're taking communion, we uh, invite you to take communion, to give offering, to be ministered to and prayed for, and we sing together. These are our responses. As you're taking communion, I want you to think of the finished work of Jesus. That's what communion represents. And I want you to be able to reflect on this future that Jesus has for us that is so real and so present, the future of the resurrection. It's not been canceled out. It's something that we wait for and we hope for because Jesus is our future. So in a sense, and this is going to sound strange, but part of our communion today is a toast to the future that Jesus has made for us. It's a nod to the security that we have in the finished work of Jesus that has won for us this future. You're not striving to achieve this future. It's already been won for you in Christ. By grace, you're saved through faith. And then we get the joy of participating in bringing that fullness about. All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you uh, for this. I pray that you would sort out the mess if there is just a, a fullness of confusion. Uh, Jesus, I pray that you would bring just great peace to our minds and our hearts. Paint the future full of hope for us, Jesus. We need you and to fix our eyes on you. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.